Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. It does not please our Heavenly Father when we say, God, I know I did that, I know I blew it, but you've got to understand, God accepts no excuses. We shouldn't either. Don't accept any excuses in your life. If you've sinned, you've sinned. God's saying you've sinned. Just admit it. Are you an excuse maker? ask you a very serious question. Do you believe our world has become soft to sin? As Christians, are we more accepting of it than we should be? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is building an argument that when it comes to sin, many of us are much too passive and tolerant, when instead we should be angry and indignant. But how can we discern when to be angry and when to extend grace? Well, that's what our message today is all about. Here's Pastor Mike. One in three persons in all industrialized nations around the world will at some point in their life contract some form of cancer. That's how widespread it is. As a matter of fact, in our country, 50% of the men at some point in their life will contract it. 33% of all women will at some point contract cancer in their body. It's devastating. And you and I know inherently because of this insidious nature of this disease that when your doctor says you've got cancer, that it is jolted to the top priority of your life. I mean, it's got to go away. We've got to eradicate it. We've got to do whatever we can do to eradicate these rebellious, ungoverned cells in my life. That's bad. That's bad news. But the Bible gives us even worse news about our condition. It says that there is a disease more widespread, more insidious, more destructive than cancer. Galatians 3 says the whole entire world is infected. Romans 6 says it is always terminal. It will always kill you. Jesus taught before this disease kills you, you will die a thousand lesser deaths because of the infection of this in your life. You're in church and you're saying, oh, if it's in the Bible and it's spiritual, that's good because I thought it may be serious and it might really hurt me. <laughs> if you might think that way, don't ever forget that the spiritual, physical, emotional impact of sin in our lives has consequences that many of us have yet to realize. And some of us, though, have walked around the block a few times. We could pass the microphone around. You could stand up and testify to the fact that sin in our lives is like cancer. And I'm not talking to the non-Christian, and this is not an evangelistic message. I'm talking about the sin in the life of a Christian. The little corners and pockets of rebellion, the little compromise in our life that no one knows about, our thought life that's out of control, but, you know, it's, it's not right, but... You know, it doesn't seem to have affected too much. Don't underestimate the power, the corrupting, destructive power of sin in your life. If it's there, John 8 says, it will be your master. If you don't eradicate it and deal with it, if it doesn't become your top priority, it will make you its slave. 
Did you know that Jesus told more Christians more often in the Bible to repent than he did non-Christians? Did you catch that? More of his ministry was given to telling Christians to repent than telling non-Christians to repent. What does that mean? That means that when you come to Christ, repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ, that's just the beginning of a pattern, a lifestyle of constantly coming before God and saying, what is in my life that needs to be eradicated? Is there any of this cancerous sin in my life today that has offended you that would just destroy my relationships and destroy my life if I let it go unchecked? That kind of self-examination and the kind of severe repentance that ought to come on the heels of discovering and diagnosing sin in your life ought to be a daily pattern in your Christian life. And if it's not, then the cancer of sin in your life may be far more widespread than you think. And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit would enlighten you just a bit to some of the pockets and corners of your life that God would want you to severely deal with. I want to this morning show you the severe side of King David. He had those moments when he responded severely. And the great news is that in 2 Samuel chapter 4, this particular episode of a severe moment in David's life is all for the right reasons. And the great thing about this passage, we can learn three components of David's severe response to the sin in his kingdom. And perhaps if we are willing, we can apply these three components to the daily actions of our lives. Whenever we uncover sin in any corner, any pocket of our lives. So look at it with me. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse number 1, 2 Samuel chapter 4. It says, when Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage. He thought, I don't know if I can do this without Abner. And when he lost courage and people saw around him that he was bummed out and that he didn't think he can do it, all of Israel in the north, they were alarmed. We don't have a king who has any confidence. Is there anybody else in line for the throne? Verse 4, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan it came from Jezreel. That was seven years prior to this date. And when he was five years old, his nurse picked him up and fled. And as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mophibosheth. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, was now 12 years old and couldn't walk. He's a paraplegic, and so there is no one for Ishbosheth to rally with and say, perhaps I can pull in the other heir to the throne, and we can talk, and we can strategize, and we can pull this thing together. This is inserted in the text here to show that these people that were so used to putting confidence in men didn't look to Mephibosheth to do much in the kingdom. And Ishbosheth certainly didn't think he was going to be of much help. So there were two guys we're introduced to in verse number two. Saul's son, that's Ishbosheth, had two men that he had put in charge of raiding bands. They were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Baana, and the other was Rechab. They were sons of Rimnon, the Berothite from the tribe of Benjamin, and some more geographical and political information at the bottom of verse two and verse three. What about these guys? Verse 5. Rechab and Baana, the sons of Rimnon, the Berothite, they set out for the house of Ishbosheth. They said, We've got a plan. Everything's in upheaval. Things are uncertain. No one's got confidence that anything good is going to happen here in the north. We've got an idea. They arrived at Ishbosheth's house in the heat of the day while he, that is Ishbosheth, was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house, that is Rechab and Baana, to get, as if to get some weed, and they stabbed the sleeping king in the stomach. 
Got to be careful sleeping in the middle of the day. And Rechab and his brother Baana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they stabbed and killed him. They cut off his head. They took it with them, traveled all night by the, by the way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and they said to him, Hey, uh, here's Ishbosheth's head, the son of Saul. He's dead. He's your enemy. You know Saul, the one who tried to take your life. This day Yahweh has avenged my lord the king against Saul and against his offspring. Aren't you happy that we brought you the head of your enemy? David answered, Rakab and his brother Baana, sons of Rimnon the Berothite, as surely as Yahweh lives, who's delivered me out of all trouble? Implication is I don't need your sinful act to accomplish God's will in my life. When a man told me that Saul is dead, you might remember from the first chapter of this book, this Amalekite came telling of the story of how he had killed Saul. He thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and put him to death when I was living down there in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. Now, do you really think this is going to be good news for me? Do you think I'm going to reward you for bringing me news that you just killed Ishbosheth in his bed while he slept there in the middle of the day? Now, you've got to see that this is a real twist. In this kingdom, it would seem like David had everything to gain and nothing to lose by Ishbosheth dying, by Ishbosheth being murdered. I mean, this was a good thing. It would advance his kingdom. It was the last obstacle to him being the sole leader, the sole recognized solo king in the kingdom. Ishbosheth out of the way. These two guys, Rechab and Baana, were so confident that David would think this would be a good idea, they came and showed up smiled at the king, had the head of Ishbosheth, said, aren't you glad we've done this? Perhaps you can give me some kind of reward. Because most people think if it benefits you, even if it's wrong, it must be all right. At least it's excusable. I mean, it's the wrong thing, but it's for the right reason. It's the wrong thing, but it accomplishes the right objective. It moves us in the right direction, and it benefits you, O king. I love David's response because David's response shows us that he is not going to make excuses, nor is he going to accept excuses for sin in his domain. You've done a bad thing. It may have benefited me. It may have been for good motives. You may have thought you were doing the kingdom a favor. Everyone was alarmed. The nation was in such an upheaval. I recognize you thought this was good, but this man was innocent, and you walked in and killed him, and that's wrong. And it's wrong because it's wrong because it's wrong. And whatever your excuses, I do not accept them. David's upset. I've taken notes this morning. This is a wonderful response from our man after God's own heart. We've seen his ups. We've seen his downs. There's more ups and downs to come. But in this passage, he's shining brightly as a man after God's own heart, a man who when he hears and sees of sin in his domain, he's not going to accept any excuses for it. And that ought to be the pattern in our lives. Number one, you and I, when it comes to sin in our domain, in our lives, we cannot accept any excuses, except no excuses for sin in your life. Now, you're not a ruling monarch of an ancient Near Eastern kingdom, but you are called by God to be in charge of your body. With the Holy Spirit's help, relying on His strength, you are to be the master of your thoughts and of your body and what you do and the cravings of your life, and you're supposed to keep that under control. And the question is, when you see sin in your life, do you make excuses for it before God? We live in a day and in an age and in a culture that is saturated and well-trained, expert in excuses. You realize that, don't you? 
Watch court TV for a while. <laughs> I mean, watch guys making uh, four or five, six hundred bucks an hour making wonderful excuses for guys that have just killed their parents or murdered or raped or done something terrible. They'll come up with wonderful reasons why, you know, these two boys are really not that all that bad. I mean, they were, they, they've done a bad thing. I recognize that. But you guys will have to excuse them because uh, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't get a lot of love at home. They, uh, you know, they, they, they were yelled at from time to time. They, they didn't get, uh, you know, they just didn't get all they needed. They were abused in some way. So you guys need to just let them off the hook. We see that in those most dramatic and worst-case scenarios all the time. But remember this, whatever the reasons for sin, they're wonderful explanations, but they're lousy excuses. That's a good axiom to live by. Whatever reasons caused you or led you or brought you to the threshold of sin, they are wonderful at explaining why you did what you did, but they do nothing to excuse it. We're used to, in our culture, hearing phrases like, not guilty by reason of insanity. Think about that one. That's the ultimate, right? I was just out of my mind when I did it. I really didn't know what I was doing. Do you know that in the Old Testament, even if your animal gorged my child, the animal was to be killed? Now think about the defense lawyer in that case, right? Oh, he's just a, he's an ox. He's a poor animal. He didn't know what he was doing. The Bible says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your excuse, you're still responsible for your choices. I mean, you want to hear people that have heard every excuse in the book. Talk to some of our police officers here who've pulled people over. Why are you speeding today? Well, and off they go. We're good at making excuses. I got lots of excuses for why I do what I do. Keep your finger here. Let me show you why it's such a terrible thing and why this is so important that we don't make excuses. Turn over to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. As you're looking down at the bottom of this chapter, let me remind you that excuses are simply a form of denial, are they not? Excuses are a form of denial. They're saying, I didn't really do as bad as you think I did because I've got these reasons. I'm not fully responsible, and it's not the big transgression you think it is because we are mitigating the responsibility. We're saying it really isn't as bad, and I really didn't do wrong, and I can't be held responsible, and I'm really not guilty because I've got reasons. Verse 8, 1 John chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, and isn't that what we're doing? We, underline it, what? Deceive ourselves. We're just kidding ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, that's the problem. We're pretending it's not really something wrong because I can explain why I did it. Explanations aren't excuses. They're just explanations. Verse 9, but if we confess, circle that word, our sins, that's a great little Greek word, homologia, homos, this prefix that uh, even we use in language, it means in our language, the same, homogenized, homosexual, the same, that's what homo means. Logia is, means to declare or to state it, a statement. Homologia means that I am stating the same thing God is stating. I am saying the same thing God is saying. That's what confession is. I say to God exactly what you would say about this. And you know what? God isn't a God of excuses. He does not say, well, Mike did that because, you know, Mike's had a hard day today. God takes no excuses. He makes no excuses. And so when he looks at my sin, he wants me to say, the, yeah, it's the same thing he would say. That's wrong. That's sin. I blew it. That's confession. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful, he's just, and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim, verse 10, we have not sinned, for whatever reasons and whatever excuses we may put behind it, we make him out to be a liar. What does that mean? He's saying, Mike, you did wrong today. And I'm saying, well, not really, God. We're making him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our life. I know of two little boys who live in my home who make innumerable mistakes. They were born that way. I don't know about yours, but mine make mistakes all day long. And I expect that, and I recognize that, and I realize they're going to make them. But what their dad cannot handle is when they look me in the eye and make excuses. You make excuses for your sin. You make an excuse for your fault. You make an excuse for your mistake. Now, it's not that dad isn't willing to forgive, and it's not that dad isn't loving and wants to throw his arms around you and say, it's going to be all right. I just want you to admit it. <laughs> Because when my little boy points at his little brother, right, it makes his fault worse. And Shakespeare said it well, didn't he? He doth make his fault worse by the excuse. And we do the same thing with God. It does not please our Heavenly Father when we say, God, I know I did that, I know I blew it, but you've got to understand. God accepts no excuses. We shouldn't either. Don't accept any excuses in your life. If you've sinned, you've sinned. God's saying you've sinned. Just admit it. Are you an excuse maker? No excuses. New commitment in our lives, you make that your passion, and you'll start recognizing just how much cancer is there. And that might be the healthiest thing you could do because there's not much help for diseases in the lives of patients who don't realize they have a problem. You know what I'm saying? That's the doctor's first objective. You've got to convince the patient he's got a problem. And being a person who takes no excuses and accepts no excuses is a great place to start. Number two, back to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Not only does David bypass all the possible excuses why killing Ishbosheth was a good idea, not only does he say, this is wrong because it's wrong. He, in verse number 11, puts it in such an emphatic way. It expresses to us in the language that, that is chosen here. It reflects his attitude. Look at it, verse 11. He says, I killed that Amalekite for telling me that it was a great thing that Saul is dead. How much more, verse 11, when, I love this, underline it, wicked men have killed, underline it, an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed. I mean, he just calls a spade a spade. You may see it's a good strategic move, it's a wonderful military move and all that, but here's what it really is. I can recognize it for what it is. It's a sinful person killing an innocent person, and that's wrong, and it's just wrong, and I'm taking no excuses for it, and I'm angry about it. How do I know that? Bottom of verse 11. Should I not now demand his blood, that is Ishbosheth's blood, from your hands and, uh, circle this word, this little three-letter word, rid the earth of you? It's a little small English word, but in Hebrew, it's rich. The word is to exterminate. It's, to, it's, to, uh, it's akin and it's a cognate to the word to burn or to consume. It means to completely stamp out, to wipe out, to get rid of in a, in a total and complete way. It's a very rich and strong word that he chooses. And what's the point of that? It shows me that he is mad. He's angry. He didn't just say, you know, you probably, you probably should be executed for this. He says, we ought to wipe the whole entire name, thought, memory of you 
off the earth. You ought to be incinerated because of what you've done. And he's angry. Oh, but it benefited David. Didn't matter. Sin is sin. I take no excuses. I accept no excuses for sin in my domain. And I should be repulsed by sin. Not just saying sin is sin. I ought to be just angry about it. You know, the church has a problem today. Sometimes we're passive when we need to be angry. Sometimes we're tolerant when we need to be indignant. Do you recognize that as a problem in the Church of Jesus Christ today? I mean, we're just, things are cool. It's okay, I people, you know what? Sometimes we need to be livid at the problems in our lives, in our church, and in our culture, and they ought to make us angry. Sin is not just sin. A powerful message from Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point. If you'd like the study notes, or if you'd like to listen to the complete message without interruption, go to focalpointradio.org. Just look for the sermon called Dealing with Sin in Your Own Domain. Well, with the election season behind us, I think we were all hoping for some relief from the rampant contention in our country. But people are just as divided as before. Yeah, Dave, tensions are high, no doubt about that. If I had to pick a word, though, to describe what's going on, it just would be confusion, right? This place is confused. This country is confused. There's so many lies masquerading as truth out there. People don't know how to tell fact from fiction. And that's why more than ever, I'm wholly committed to the mission of Focal Point. Right? We want this daily program to be a source of clarity in a land of confusion. I'd like it to be some sanity in a, in a crazy world, some rest, some spiritual rest, some mental rest amid all the stuff that's going on out there. Just a voice, a beacon of truth with all the falsehood that's out there. That's what we want. We want to see these programs every day make a difference. Offer all of these resources through our website, our app, and on the radio, all for free because of the generous support of people like you. And that really is where this happens. It happens because we join together to make it happen, right? When we say we're running a lean ministry, we, we are. I mean, we really are an army of volunteers every single day helping to make this happen with a very lean staff and so much that's going on behind the scenes by people just sacrificing their time. It doesn't mean there's not expenses. Clearly, there are. And we get bills every single month, just like you do. And it's the generosity of our Focal Point listeners that keep us on the air, keep us going strong. So this December, if you would, if you pray about it, think about it, if you would commit to it, it'd be great to have you step forward with a special year-end gift to help Focal Point. Whatever that amount is, it goes directly toward fueling the ministry and reaching even more people with the truth. So confusion, I think that's on the forecast. That's not going away. Uh, probably only going to get worse, but here's the good news. We can continue to declare the depths of Scripture in a world that desperately needs to hear it. So thank you so much for joining with me in supporting this ministry and making that happen. Go online to focalpointradio.org. You can also donate by calling 888-320-5885. And to show our gratitude for your gift today, we'd like to send you a helpful book titled The Essential Scriptures, a handbook of the biblical texts for key doctrines by author Kevin D. Zuber. If you want to be a lifelong student of Scripture, then this book deserves a place in your library. It's presented in an organized, easy-to-use format. The Essential Scriptures helps you keep track of which scriptures support which doctrines and balances Scripture with helpful commentary. Ask for The Essential Scriptures when you make your year-end donation today by calling 888-320-5885 or give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to... 
Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your regular support plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future, and we're so grateful. So sign up today, won't you, when you call 888-320-5885, or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we continue dealing with sin in your own domain. That's Thursday on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.